KRCL Salt Lake City. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Today, a special Labor Day edition of our community affairs show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Coming up, we're going to mash up music meets activism with our Magnify Utah series. Magnify Utah, the new digital platform from the Utah Division of Multicultural Affairs, which is collecting all Utah stories. Tonight, the Japanese community in Utah, a story of healing, resilience, and organizing. My guests will be Utah State Senator Janie Iwamoto and Dr. Jeanette Misaka, who was herself placed in an internment camp during World War II. And as you hear our conversation later this hour, Dr. Misaka and Senator Iwamoto will talk about how the language has changed from that of internment to being in a concentration camp in the United States. Senator Iwamoto has also put together a playlist to accompany our conversation, so stick around for that too. Right now, let's do some rallies and resources, and I had the chance to speak with KRCL's own Eric P. Nelson in light of our upcoming block party and record sale to celebrate 909 Day on Friday. Thought I'd give you a sneak peek of what's in store, and since Monday night's KRCL gets the blues at 8 o'clock with Brian Kelm on Red, White, and Blues, we decided to dive into that category in this round of Crate Diggin' with Eric P. Nelson. How you doing, Eric? Doing good. Yeah, exhausted already, I can Exa- tell. <laughs> it has been, we haven't done this in two years. Uh-huh. And so we have lots of records stored up. It is. We've got stored from last time and we've got such an incredible selection. People have been, I don't know about itching to get their vinyl out of their houses. <laughs> but Generous as well. It has been coming in day after day, week after week for yeah. a year now. So we've got fantastic stuff. Well, every Monday night, KRCL gets the blues, red, white, and blues with Brian Kelm. So you have a selection of blues records that... May be available if you're fast enough on Friday, right? And that's the Kay. key, if you're fast enough. All right, so. let's do a lightning round. What you got? We got Charlie Patton, founder of the Delta Blues, some Sun House, the real Delta Blues, some uh, Jimmy Rogers with Little Walter and Muddy Waters, uh, Moan and Art Blakely, Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues. Okay, wait a minute. Let me see that one because I want to see what kind of condition these are in because we don't put out junk, right? Yep, nope. I stretch the junk. So literally, <laughs> exactly. I stretch the junk. But this one, uh, Thesaurus of Classic Jazz Series from Columbia, Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues Singers. And what I love about this old vinyl is all the notes Yeah. on the back, folks. So, And I'm looking at the vinyl. It's in excellent condition condition we got uh, so much that has come in has been in that's excellent condition yeah it's sometimes we'll we'll get the crates that we found in the garage or up in the attic but we got so many actual collections people that collected this stuff and finally decided hey i'm gonna pass it forward we got some Sonny Boy Williamson. Oh, some Black Sabbath. <laughs> oh, wait. That's, that somehow slipped into the blues that collection. Let, I, that's mine. I, for, I forgot. I told you to hold the Black Sabbath oh. for me. Sabotage. <laughs> some Lightning Hopkins. Some Bo Diddley. Yeah, some things. They, they snuck in, but very excited for you all to get a, a crack at this. Um, first and foremost, at the 909 Block Party, 4 o'clock is when we'll start selling this stuff. The good stuff goes quick. 
So yeah. show up early. All right. There's your Crate Diggers session 101. Tomorrow, what's our category? Who Should we do prints tomorrow? Let's do prints. Let's do we, it. That's, that sounds like we have a lot of prints. There's a lot of prints. And other stuff, so stick around. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Yep. Eric B. Nelson. Check tonight's show notes for a gander at some of those albums we talked about. And to round out this Labor Day edition of Radioactive, I decided to phone up an old friend of the show, a teacher, to hear how work is going since returning to the classroom. First of all, for this guest, it's not work. It is a labor of love. Let's pass the microphone and find out more. My name is John Arthur. I teach sixth grade at Meadowlark Elementary. So, John, you've been on the show many times. You've been teacher of the year since we've been talking. And now yeah. we're back into another school year back in person, although the pandemic is still with us. And so I thought for Labor Day, I'd check in with you and see how things are going, because I noticed on your social media that you've been posting a lot about what you're experiencing as a teacher. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the year is starting off like years in the past used to, right? Kids playing, having fun, no masks in sight. And so it feels kind of like a Twilight Zone episode where you look around and things look like they have the the signs of normalcy about them, but there's a there's still this odd feeling in the air where things aren't quite right, right? I, I understand the context in which I'm teaching. I know that there's this terrible teacher shortage that's hitting us in Utah and nationwide. I know that my friends and colleagues are, you know, many being consumed by this rising tide of retirements and resignations. I know that my students, while they look like they're healthy and happy, are still dealing with trauma and trying to figure out what it's like to be in school, given that they haven't had a normal year of school since third grade. And now they're in their final year of elementary school trying to figure out not only how to be successful students, but what it is to be an adolescent in 2022. It's it's this strange vibe that's just kind of floating around where it feels good, but there there may be dread and doom around the corner. You're just not sure. Yeah. Well, every school year, we always hear about teachers pulling money out of their own pocket to get their classroom set up. But oh, over yeah. the last couple of years, we've done lots of hard things as a community, as a society, mm -hmm. and we've come up mm -hmm. with money for things that we didn't think we had money for. I was noticing yes. uh, just in the last week or two, you uh, did a social media post that said, when it comes to increasing teacher pay, if legislators tell you we can't, Remind them we must. So here on this Labor Day edition of Radioactive, what yeah. is it you want the public to know about their taxes getting spent to pay teachers? What do you want lawmakers to understand? In 2020, Envision Utah, this group of private and public leaders, came out with a number, $60,000 as the average starting pay for teachers and $110,000 as an end-of-career uh, salary goal. If we can make that happen, $60,000 to start and $110,000 by the end of your career, then we can start to make significant changes in education. We can have the kind of impact on teacher retention and recruitment, pulling the best and brightest into our profession, and thereby elevating outcomes for children. If we did those things, then we can make a significant impact on education. However, one of the things that happened throughout the pandemic was there was a major investment into education from the federal government through um, the American Recovery Act, um, 
so on and so forth. A lot of money came in in the form of materials. But one of the most important things to remember on Labor Day is that humans are expensive. If you want to pay for another teacher to come into a building, you're talking about a serious investment of money. And while pallets full of masks and hand sanitizer and pencils and papers look really good, it doesn't replace the impact that a quality teacher can have on the lives of a classroom of children. So right now, even though we've had a historic investment in education from last year's legislative session, even though we've seen people throughout the community donating supplies and materials, and it's all been super appreciated and we're all very grateful for it, we're still not getting to the root of the problem. It's a human capital issue that we're facing. The supply of teachers is too low to the level of demand that we have. And so we need to remember that the people who make the decision on how much money is available to pay teachers are our legislators. And we need to put pressure on them to fund education at the level that would allow us to pay teachers at a, at a wage high enough to draw them from the private sector and the other positions that are calling to us because I could very easily leave the classroom and make almost double what I make as a classroom teacher right now. You mentioned I was teacher of the year. Despite that, I could go out and work for a private uh, curriculum company, education consultant, whatever else, and make way more uh, than I do in the classroom. So and why do you stay? Never... Well, I love my work. I love what I do. And it's, it's, it's my calling. This is, this is what I'm meant to do. But you can't run a system purely with people who view their job as their calling because that's what we're seeing right now. Only a handful will stay and put up with the, the lower pay than they deserve, the, the amount of vitriol that we are receiving from different uh, groups out there saying the most awful things about teachers right now, accusing us of doing all kinds of ridiculous grooming, indoctrination, whatever other horrible verb you want to throw at what we do in our beautiful classrooms with our amazing students. It's, it's, it's more than most people are willing to bear. And we are now seeing the consequences play out in our classrooms. I'm looking over your shoulder at one of the uh, signs you've put up for your students. This is hard. That's good. Can you apply mm -hmm. that to what teachers are going through? I can when I'm talking to my fellow teachers. I can talk to my teachers, my friends, my colleagues and say, hey, this is an historically difficult time. And to all of us who choose to stay, we are doing the work of saints. Unfortunately, we're also doing the work of martyrs. And anybody who wants to go, I get it. I, I don't hold it against you. I'm going to stay. I still love my job. I'm going to continue to do this for the rest of my career. However, I'm not going to look at somebody who's making our lives harder and say, that's good. Like I can, I can accept challenge in my work and, and embrace it and, and overcome. But I'm also going to look at people who are not stepping up in the way that they should. And I'm going to hold them accountable for that. I'm going to say, hey, you need to make life easier for teachers because we don't have enough of us. We are a precious resource. And so you need to make choices that make our profession more attractive 
and allow us to attract new professionals into the classroom and hang on to the ones that we have. And also, you know, you talk about it being a calling. And in so many cases where that is a hallmark of the job, Mm -hmm. it's used to keep you in a low-paying job that mistreats you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that you love it. Mm -hmm. That's your reward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's, believe me, I I wrestle with this all the time because – that is, that is the truth of my, of my professional life. This is my calling. I love my work. The, the, I say this all the time to my students. Children are the best people. Teaching is the best job. And there's no better way to spend a day than in a classroom with kids. But at the same time, while I love what I do, it's hard not to take a step back and look at our situation and not feel like we're in an abusive relationship. And we're choosing to remain within it. We're, we're calling on people to help us, those who can make it the kind of relationship that we need it to be, the kind of relationship it ought to be. But at the same time, we are taking punishment for things that we do not deserve. And, and st- we're just big hearted people trying to do right by children. I was going to say, and you're staying in it for the kids. So, yeah. all right, let's go out with a song that you want to send out to teachers, to the community here on this Labor Day. What you got? I get to pick it? You get to pick. Oh, my goodness. I'm doing things that children are telling me to do all day. I, I never get choices. This is beautiful. Okay. I tell you, there, there was a song that got me through the pandemic that, that gave me clarity on why I still want to be a teacher. And it's, uh, it's Drift Away. I think it's by Dobie Gray. And in that song, he has this line where he says, um, thanks for the joy that you've given me. I want you to know I believe in your song. And that's how I feel about my students. And that's how I feel about my life in the classroom. I'm just grateful to the kids because they bring me joy. And I believe not only in their song, but in in their melody and the beats they bring and that they are going to carry us ultimately to a better place. John Arthur, 2021 Utah Teacher of the Year. Thanks so much for giving me some time. No, thank you so much, Laura. Thank you, John. And if you liked what John had to say or curious about what other teachers are going through, tune in tomorrow night. Rashawn Leak will join me again as host of Roundtable Tuesday on Radioactive, and we'll have a panel discussion with John and some more teachers. But now to fill that request by John, here is Dobie Gray, Drift Away, on KRCL 90.9. Day after day. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Love Promise, a partnership with local nonprofit organizations to support and strengthen our community. Now accepting applications for 2023 nonprofit partnerships. More information on Mark Miller Subaru's Love Promise and application process at markmillersubaru.com. As Utah continues to hit triple-digit records this summer, remember you can escape the heat at a Salt Lake County cool zone. These are areas in the county and Salt Lake City facilities where members of the public can escape the summer heat, hydrate, and learn about available programs, including Salt Lake County senior centers, libraries, and recreation centers. Salt Lake City libraries also serve people of all ages. For a map of cool zone locations near you, visit the Connect page of krcl.org.
Hello, children. You know who I am. I know who you are. And we all know who the who are. KRCL's Music Meets Movies is back. Returning on Thursday, September 8th at Ruby Cinema Pub in Salt Lake City, we'll be screening the most often requested film for Music Meets Movies, the Who documentary, The Kids Are Alright. This 1979 film documents the Who through live performances, promotional films, and interviews spanning 1964 to 1978. The film also features the band's last performance with the legendary drummer Keith Moon. The Kids Are Alright, Thursday, September 8th at Bruby Cinema Pub in Salt Lake City. One screening only, tickets at 6.30, movie at 7.30, information at krcl.org. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, a Labor Day edition of Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm at 8 o'clock. Michelle's Night Train boards at 10.30. John Florence back for your brand new day starting at 6 a.m. Tuesday morning. The last two weeks of any show available to listen on demand at krcl.org. All you got to do is click the Programs tab and sort by date or show title. For the rest of the hour, we're diving into the mashup between Music Meets Activism and Magnify Utah. For the last several Mondays, we've been talking to folks whose stories are part of this new digital platform online at a new digital platform launched by multicultural.utah.gov magnify. They're connecting communities, places, and multicultural stories, stories that don't rise to the top necessarily through mainstream media, and we're amplifying their magnifying. Tonight, the Japanese community in Utah. Let's pass the microphone to my guests, Utah State Senator Janie Iwamoto and Dr. Jeanette Masaka. I asked them to start by introducing themselves. Here is the senator. Well, I was born and raised here, and I am, uh, my grandparents on both sides immigrated from Japan. So I am a third generation, which is called Sansei, and I lived here all my life until law school and I moved to California and came back and uh, I've always been very involved in the uh, Asian community or J- and Japanese community and so this effort for Japantown is something that's uh, you know efforts across the nation actually but this is something special to me here. Dr. Masaka. I was born in uh, California San Jose California and I'm really a uh, implant <laughs> from California to here. Um, I we came here after uh, World War II. Uh, I was incarcerated at uh, Heart Mountain, Wyoming, and my father came out to Utah to farm, and that's how I got to Utah. And then I came to college here, the University of Utah. So you were actually interned in one of these these camps, and that's a, a view I don't get to hear very often, and one I'm grateful for you being willing to share some of it today. But let's start with the immigrant story of the Japanese community to Utah, and I'm not sure, this is directed at both of you, however you'd like to jump in and share, but the Magnify Utah Project has just just a sliver of the story. 
that starts out saying, following Japan's Meiji restoration and opening, the island nation found itself economically stagnant, unstable, and overpopulated after a civil war. So like Latinos and Filipinos and, and Chinese immigrants moved to Salt Lake, Japanese mm -hmm. laborers migrated because the demand for laborers here in the States and especially on the transcontinental railroad. Does that ring with any of your two family stories, by the way? Right. So oh, why don't you go ahead? Oh, you go ahead. <laughs> you go first. No, I was just saying there's there's also, yes, uh, Japanese railroad workers as well. And then, uh, in fact, we just were uh, found a tombstone of the some Japanese that had come here in the Moab area and learning, trying to learn their stories of coming here on the railroad, but also, and then farmers, farmers, a lot of farmers came here, but then also, um, and maybe I'm skipping over too much, but um, a lot of people like like Dr. Misaka came here um, after being incarcerated in camps. And so with Topaz, they came from mostly California. Yeah. California. And they were first in, a lot of them were in Tamferan, uh, which was a race horse track. A racetrack. And they they stayed in horse stables before they were incarcerated here. Yeah. My dad, my dad came to farm and we were more in central Utah, Richfield area. When was that? That was in 19, well, it's in the 40s. <laughs> okay. And then there was internment. And that is a huge part of um, a story that's kind of out of sight, out of mind in Utah. And I wanted to spend some time on that um, because as we're living in these polarized times and uh, different parts of the community are pointing fingers at other parts of the community and the, the hate crimes perpetrated against people from Japan, from China in the wake yeah. of the pandemic, um, it feels like our past is prologue. Do you too feel like that? Do you feel like we've failed to learn our, our history, Dr. Masaka? Yes, I think we have. And that's because it's, the history has not always reflected our participation in our communities. And I think that's that's where we've lost a lot. Yeah. And I just might want to say, when we say internment, it is now uh, even federally known as American concentration camps. So we say incarcerated um, because, yeah. you know, they... It was, they we were, were in a prison, <laughs> yes. But, um, yeah, you yeah, weren't so. interning for congressmen or anything like no. that. <laughs> they were when, that, when that language switched, was there uh, a moment of validation or recognition uh, for the J Japanese community? I don't know if the two of you, like you say, you know, now we call it this, but there was a point when we didn't and we tried to forget this ugly period. But now we do. We call it um, incarcerated. We call it an American concentration camp. Yes. And, and like, I think uh, some of the efforts to to get redress and reparations. So there was a lot of that's where they gave, uh, you know, money. And when I was in the Bay Area, there was efforts like that. And we worked on those kind of things, too, because we know that if you, you know, what was done to American citizens, um, hopefully should not happen again. But we know it does. But that's why it's important that we it was try a nominal, yeah. Try to remember, and it's a not. It was a nominal amount, but it was still given, and it wasn't given to all those who suffered. 
it was those that were just living. Um, but it sometimes when you have to pay or do something, you remember it more. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you're yeah. on, you on that, but yeah. no, I guess it's yeah, it was a token, mm-hmm. token, yeah, token remembrance. But uh, that's why too we try to work with other communities like our uh, other communities of color because we know that it does happen again and um it has happened has happened again and and again and again and koromatsu case was one i was in law school and i worked with uh delminami and his law firm and they were working in after hours to reverse uh reverse the um conviction of fred koromatsu he was one of the more well-known figures in uh, topaz and um that ended up in Topaz and he fought his, um, you know, why as an American citizen, do I, should I be going here? And so it's a very, you know, there were three petitioners. And so that part uh, of history is really important. I wanted to play something off the playlist that you sent me and your very first song is called A Thousand Cranes by Hiroshima. What about this song do you want folks to know as we play it? Oh, I just, they're a Japanese American, you know, jazz uh, band, and uh, I've gotten to know some of them. And when we did the issuance of, there was an issuance of a Nisei soldier stamp recently, and our le- I worked on it and had our legislature and our administration support that effort. And, and there was efforts going on all over, but they did finally do a commemorative stamp. And, and then they played this at there, you know, June and uh, Kimo mm-hmm. on the keyboard. And it's using, you know, the koto, which is a Japanese instrument. And they're just, they're an amazing jazz band. They're breaking up at the end of the year, but but June on her uh, koto and uh, Kimo on the keyboard will continue on. A Thousand Cranes by Hiroshima on KRCL. Another song from Hiroshima here on KRCL. It is Magnify Utah, mashing up with music meets activism. And my guest, Senator Janie Iwamoto and Dr. Jeanette Misaka. This one is Cruisin' J-Town. You you love this band. I'm sorry they're breaking up, Senator. But what about (laughs) the song did you want to share with folks? Well, we're talking about Japantown, and I thought it was an it would be something nice to share on your show. (laughs) Let's talk about Japantown because like so many other ethnic neighborhoods, they were demolished to make way for progress. And in the case of Japantown, the Salt Palace, um, almost uh, the last bit demolished as more development pressures have come to bear. But I understand that there is some work being done with Salt Lake City and the redevelopment agency to try and revive parts of Japantown. So let's talk about the history of Japantown and what you want to share with folks about it. Because uh, after internment, folks coming back into the city, the Japanese population, um, and what was what was left of Japantown, I'm guessing folks um, moved into again. Yeah, so I know that in the six, late 60s, is that's when it was, um, I was six, seven years old, I think, but it was obliterated by the construction of the Salt Palace uh, Convention Center. And um, and I wanted Dr. Misaka to be here because she was of the generation that lived it. My father lived it. And Judge Uno, uh, he's been an integral part of these efforts. He lived it and he remembered them coming 
and saying uh, we want to put a convention center, but they had he had they had been told it would be on 21st South, and uh, the Japanese community has always been supportive of development, but it they had they had no idea that it would be there and destroy what was Japantown. And there's a chart I can't show you, but um, the what it looked like uh, back then, and there were businesses and uh, pole halls and restaurants and community centers. It was a place where other people didn't want to go at the time, but it was a place of heart and home for the community. That's right. And so I, I'd like uh, Dr. Misaka to talk about that, and I can tell you what we've done since that time. But I wanted her, as her generation, to share what it meant to them. Dr. Misaka, how old were you in Japantown? Oh, that's when I came to college. So I was, let's see, I must have been 18. And um, what I, I remember of it is we had um, um, hotels, grocery market, fish market, cleaners, pool hall, um, beauty shops, Japanese restaurants, Aloha Cafe, uh, Don Noodles, and several others. Um, and we had the uh, Japanese American Citizens League Credit Union at the time, and that's uh, was the JCL was the first civil rights uh, organization, Asian civil rights organization uh, in America, and it was relocated here in Salt Lake, and that was uh, one of the um, offices on uh, First South. There were gas stations, barber shops, and then of course the newspaper. But most of all, it was a place of gathering, and also a place where you can go and get exchange of news of what's happening in the community, uh, the Japanese community especially. And so um, it was just a delightful place. And so when I was in college, we'd go down there to First South, and that was the place of meeting. Well, and I think of all the things that here in 2022, we say we want to create a sense of community and we just, we just obliterated. But now when we try and say, hey, tourists, come to Utah and check out, well, we've got a little bit of Japantown left. We've got a little <laughs> bit of Greek town left. We got just a tiny, teeny bit. What is still down there, Senator Iwamoto? So all that's left um, churches. is the two uh, Japanese churches, the Salt Lake Buddhist Temple and the Japanese Church of Christ, which have been there over 100 years. The Japanese Church of Christ is also on the historic registry. Um, and they own some parking lots and uh, a Buddhist temple owns another building. But that's really all that's left. Two businesses, I think, that survived was Pagoda, which is now gone, and also Sage Market, Japan Market, which relocated um, to Main Street. Um, but other than that, that's all that the only two vestiges of what was once Japantown. And so um, anyway, we've, in 2000, I could go into more, but please, in, 2000, please. in 2003 uh, was when I was, uh, I had come back from the Bay Area. I went there and worked and lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I came back and um, in 2003, in response to Salt Lake City's efforts to partially close 100 South between 200 and 300 West, um, we uh, 
we always found out we didn't find out but we found out a back way and and we were alerted to that so the community gathered and went to the city council meeting and they decided not to partially close it and uh, mayor rocky anderson was there at the time who has always been very supportive, supportive. of our community um very very supportive and and so this led to this creation of a Japanese Community Preservations Committee, which uh, Judge retired Judge Raymond Uno was our president. I served as the vice president, but we were a group of individuals made up from the two churches and the community at large. And then we accomplished many things um, because then after that, um, uh, I uh, we uh, they wanted to expand and the Salt Palace, and then that became another issue the expansion and how it would impact our churches you know and it was when retail outdoor outdoor retailers was here and crates were all over and it was hard as our community because every time something happened negative impacts happened with it yeah. and so at that time uh, uh we pushed for a garden so now there's a garden and we're going to have some special thing in the in the near future on that but the garden was put there to honor those that came before us, uh, the Nisei and Issei, uh, and it was, uh, and that happened while I was I was on the county council, and that was the one issue that moved me to run for county council at that time. But we had that too. But it was really uh, everything function. It was to buffer the ingress and egress of traffic coming mm -hmm. into to hurt uh, pedestrians and in that area. Then we had put up like kimono style gates and. Uh, different things that represented the community height of the building too was lowered everything you know and we that was when we gained um, partnerships with the county and the city and to um, and since that time uh, too um, other things that came up during that time the convention hotel was gonna that was the one option there they ended up moving that elsewhere crates in this we did a resolution um I also went up to the legislature. I wasn't in there then, but we did do legislation to protect further from further mm -hmm. expansion and just some other other things that we did. Um, and then, you know, then when I got into the Senate, I <laughs> there was a lot of things that our legislature had done too to enable the now the Block 67 that has uh, come to fruition. And we we're now turning the corner a bit, but we were again on uh, these laws really impacted us. They took away our right to uh, have liquor. It's not that we're against um, alcohol, but they changed it on uh, on the community so that we did not have that as a bargaining tool to, you know, because it was within uh, 600 feet. But the 600 um, feet of, a, of your churches? Or a church or a <laughs> playground or um that that was the law before you yeah. could get a variant so your so then, your own developmental potential was limited by the state and other actors who are keep eating away at japantown yes mm -hmm. and so that one was a uh, one that was done by uh in conjunction with the lds church and um the uh because they didn't like the variances because then you could get as close as 200 feet and but it really impacted us because because of that, then the new development were the back end of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a good urban planning because everywhere the back of the Salt Palace or the back of, you know, urban planning should be energizing your streets at every yes. level. But this uh, mm -hmm. really impacted us. But we moved ahead. We 
negotiated and did some things with the Ritchie group that does that. But our legislature, yes, passed other laws to help them as well. And mm -hmm. but now we're looking towards the future and Salt Lake City um, has invested in uh, a design company, G GSBS, and they um, worked with the community and others. I pandemic kind of harm, you know, affected that because we couldn't have these robust meetings like we wanted to, but everybody came together to just do a new vision of Japantown, what we want to do. And I feel like there's a lot of momentum right now. So, yeah. Well, I got a couple other songs I want to get in here from your Music Meets Activism slash Magnify Utah playlist. And this one's the Murasaki Ensemble. Is it Alvin's Blues? Am I reading that title correctly? Yeah, I tried to find one. This was actually from a friend of mine in the Bay Area, and he said, you got to hear them. They're really great, um, uh, you know, with Japanese culture. So that's the one I picked for the one with fusion that I thought you might enjoy. On KRCL Radioactive. Jagoya, crystal clear moon, is what that word means by Kenny Endo. It's off the Music Meets Activism list of our guests this evening. We have Dr. Jeanette Misaka and Senator Janie Iwamoto. Senator Iwamoto, tell us about this song from Kenny Endo. Well, I just love all of Kenny Endo. He's really fusion, but he's known throughout the world. And he's an uh, excellent taiko player in his band. And uh, he, we did have him out here for our second Nihomatsuri. Mm -hmm. I asked him to come and they came to play. And he's he's really a great person as Artist. well. He comes to teach others the culture of taiko and Japanese culture. So he's in based in Hawaii and he's a good friend. And I asked him to send me some of his work. So, you you know, and he said, cut wherever you want. But it's <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's one of his many well, it's a great song, and I'm glad you brought up the festival and Taiko Drummers because I've been down there many times, and um, uh, I was in the hall where the, the drummers were rehearsing before they were playing, and I was it just sends chills up my spine because it's just right through you. So how long have uh, has Japantown hosted the Nihon Matsuri Festival? You know, several years. Let's see. I can't. I I should know that because I remember last year. But they took a pause, and they yes. they took a pause during the pandemic and this year. But it will head back. I'm not sure if it's been a less than a decade. Year. I think less yeah. than a decade. I'm pretty sure. But we have had other festivals like the uh, Akimatsuri and Obon on the streets for a long time. The Japanese Church of Christ has held off on theirs because we had a hundredth year anniversary and then mm -hmm. with the pandemic we wanted to be sure but we're we're coming back next year i hope that it will be a good year for everyone well mm -hmm. through all the ups and downs japan town has held on and uh, like you said good things are around the corner so what is this timeline you said this garden is being unveiled but it sounds like other things are in the works you want to tease us a little yeah. bit senator energize mm -hmm. yeah we're trying to energize the block and and even though we're the back end we're trying to make it um more of a front end and destination place. So the uh, blueprint you could see, but as far as some events we're going to do, um, and and it's a public private partnership, I foresee uh, the we have some, some funds that will be coming in through tax increment um, over a long period of time. Uh, but there's been just such an energy of people wanting to, you know, 
someone very dear to the community had passed away um, don making donations. Um, others have asked to help with grants. Um, the Consulate General of Japan has come here and they're very interested and want to meet on that next week. And um, and then just we, um, we had our Nisei soldiers who were in World War II, um, the 100th Infantry Battalion, the 442, which was the most decorated uh, of their size and, and uh, length of service, and then the military intelligence service. So we had honored them years ago, and uh, our state had done a great job at honoring them when uh, Governor Herbert was in, and we honored them at, in D.C. as well. Um, and we had an event that started off as 200 attendees and it became 1,200. So, and we moved from Little America to Grand Grand. Grand. <laughs> and so we had a great event here, but we decided there was a plaque down and uh, just the stories of what they went through, the discrimination and yet fought for the country. And then, like I told you, the Moab Isolation Center is a different story. Oh, too, yes, because... we haven't even gotten there. So let's yeah, but, let's talk but about I this. Wanted, I wanted to, yeah, so... Anyway, okay. that's what we, um, there's a lot of things. So we're going to be honoring the World War II veterans at the, the in probably a couple months at the garden. We're going to do a nice plaque. And... Wonderful. Well, in talking to you, preparing for this conversation, you had mentioned something about the isolation center in Moab. And I'm like, wait, slow down, back it up. What are we talking about? I knew about Topaz. I knew about the internment camps. What yeah. are these isolation centers and what did Moab have to do with it? So Moab, um, I, so <laughs> it's something that I think even a lot of Japanese Americans don't know about, but uh, it's it was a journey for me too. Um, Steve Ellison and I uh, did uh, the Raptor Park in Moab, and I was interested in it because of this Moab Isolation Center. It wasn't funded that year, but the next year it was. And so it um, it's a place where... Um, they are taking the the real bad ones so the folks involuntarily uh, incarcerated against their will because of discrimination were then put in the isolation facility yeah so it was like to me what it when i learned about it, it's like you're incarcerated in topaz or someplace and the they you know well i should be more accurate but they were incarcerated and then they were taken out for basically solitary confinement they didn't care if they lived or died there were 56 men who went to Moab Isolation Center. One particular was Harry Ueno, who passed away a couple of years ago. And he was in charge of the mess hall, like the food. And he found out that the administrators were taking food from the in, 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 in the incarcerated. And um, so he kind of unionized or protested, but he ended up there. I think it was like a six foot by eight foot wooden box they try to transplant it on a flatbed truck with just this little hole to breathe and they put six to eight people in there but I'm so happy that they're going to uh, honor that with this um, we have been working on with the state um, and a visitor center and a third and, and part of that will be for the Moab Isolation Center and to highlight that history we have so much history which is um, to learn from, you know, with Topaz, right. we have um, the Moab Isolation Center. And I was there too. And George Takei came out to uh, for the Moab Festival, music festival. And we were on a panel and 
he does he's spending the rest of his life talking about the stories because he was born in camp and mm -hmm. but i wanted jeanette to maybe you could tell too about keith lee or other things about keith lee uh -huh. oh that was a, a community that was started uh, uh, during the war the people that were evacuated from california established that in utah and um uh, turned out to be like more like a co uh, farming community. Mm -hmm. There was a short period of time where they let um, people voluntarily be incarcerated in right. a way, and so they could do farming. And there was a, so we just I just learned a lot about that because an issue came up there, and it's now under uh, the Jordanelle. It's, yeah. it's flooded, yeah, yeah. it's un underneath there. Yeah. But there was a ceremony there just recently. Honoring, but where where was Keeley? So it's under the Jordan L. Got it, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's so many stories here, rich with it, and- we... That are part of Utah history, and it should be remembered. Well, with the ongoing um, re-energizing of Japantown and your work together gathering these stories uh, hopefully more utahns will know it and that's what i really think is at the heart of the magnify utah project is to create a space where these stories can be gathered and preserved and easily accessed when it's in a dusty tome on a shelf in a library you know you got to go and find it well we can start um, celebrating these stories and looking them squarely in the face to understand where we've been and chart a, a better path forward. And I'm guessing that's part of what you hope happens with plans for Japantown. I'll put a link in the show notes for folks to check it out because it looks like it's just going to be even more beautiful. And I can't yeah. wait to see it come to fruition. But maybe uh, we have one more song to, to play and, and close the show with. But before we do that, Dr. Misaka, what is it that you want folks to know about Japantown, about the Japanese community in Utah, with the ability to look back over your life from internment to where you sit today? And I understand you uh, in, was it 2016? received the imperial decoration from the emperor of Japan, if I'm reading my Google correctly. Perhaps it was earlier than that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just, there's so much I want to say, but I think that um, the history of events help us to realize how different our lived experience is from that of our ancestors, yet how similar we are in our goals and values. That's really something that I think needs to be remembered. And Often, you know, the past always teaches us about the present, and I would like to think it helps to build empathy through studying the lives and struggles of others. And that's not just the Japanese American culture, but it's of all ethnic groups. We've all contributed well to this community, and I'd like all of us to be remembered. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your origin story with us here on Radioactive. And Senator Iwamoto, we haven't even touched on your political career. First elected to the Utah State Senate in 2014. Um, you've served in leadership as the Assistant Minority Whip. You were on the Salt Lake County Council, becoming the first Asian American woman to be elected in the state of Utah. And I just wanted to throw in, you've mentioned several times um, the retired Judge Raymond Uno, um, his special collections archive at the University of Utah's J. Willard Marriott Library, and we need to collect more stories. So what is it you want folks to know about sharing their story as part of Magnify Utah? 
Yeah, I just think that especially now sharing all of our stories are so important and where we came from. There's a lot of talk about what we shouldn't say or shouldn't, but you can't learn. You can't move ahead if you don't know the past. And we, as for me, it's become more important as I've gotten older and appreciate what my parents went through and the generation before them and know that, you know, it history does repeat themselves and that we support each other. Um, I, there's a lot of interchange, intergenerational pain and healing, but uh, when uh, I know when we had the riots that started and words matter, you know, when it was called the Kung flu and things like that, we know, and that words do matter and hate, you know, comes as a response to that. And uh, in our communities of color. So that has been so important to me and my legislature that I'm, I represent my constituents, number one, and my state, but also my communities of color. And there's only um, seven of us at the in, in the legislature, but I think the perspective, and I've been very fortunate um, in the legislature with my colleagues too, because when we bring things, things up, um, they've um, been very supportive uh, on a, you know, with the administrations and also with the legislature. And I, there's some, you know, I've worked a lot with the Native American community um, and on police reform and things like that, where the pandemic, the pandemic really uncovered a lot of inequities and social, environmental, and all kinds of uh, inequities in our, in our, what we do. So we need to also speak up for each other and see the Asian sure. community is is made up of, I don't know when we say Asian American, people say, okay, Asian American, but it's over 60 to 70 ethnic minorities within that and over a hundred languages. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need them to see that we're not all up together. We're all different. We all contribute to our state and our communities. Mm -hmm. And I think um, it's been something, but I there's some, uh, you know, quotes that are important to us and Okage Samade, I always say that because uh, it's in Hawaii at a museum and it means I am what I am because of you. And that's what we need to remember. Mm -hmm. I I have so much love and respect for Jeanette Misaka <sighs> and Judge Uno. She knows that. She's like, my, <laughs> I always go to her for things and she is so smart and intellectual intellectual but also knows so much and has such a good heart and feel and I think with her and people like her and Judge Uno they lead the way for all of us and I don't want to forget that and also uh, when I was I was at the Military Intelligence Service Historic Learning Center it's called Building 6-4 in San Francisco I'm on the National Japanese American Historical Board but they had a program there and I remember the words of justice is a matter of continuing education, and that is for sure. And and especially now more than ever, we need to remember what happened and learn it and support each other um, so that, you know, we can at least go for the vision and hope of a better uh, America, you know, that we are all equal under the law. Well, this brings us to the final song on your playlist this evening. It's a little bit of earth, wind, and fire, September. Why did you want to end with this? Because I, I love the song. I, I was having a hard time thinking, but this is kind of the Sansei generation. So <laughs> I wanted to have that played. 
Thank you so much, Senator Iwamoto and Dr. Misaka, for sharing some of your story with listeners of Radioactive. I really appreciate it, and I'm grateful for what you add to the story of Utah. Thank you. Thanks for Thank what you. you do to do. So Many thanks to Dr. Jeanette Misaka and Senator Janie Iwamoto. Check out tonight's show notes for a link to Magnify Utah and the story about the Japanese community, and feel free to add your own there. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. Going out with that request by the Senator, a little Earth, Wind, and Fire, September on KRCL 90.9.